You're listening to the Sparrows and Wildflowers podcast. Stories of faith, love, life, loss, and eternity. Welcome to our first episode for 2016. If you'd like to suggest a potential interviewee for the podcast or discuss anything that you've heard on Sparrows and Wildflowers, you can email me at rachel at victoryonemedia.com. That's R-A-C-H-E-L at victory, one spelled out, media.com. Now let's get into this week's episode. For episode six, I spoke with Justin Moffat, Senior Minister of Churchill Anglican in Sydney CBD. We spoke about him growing up feeling an inherent sense of the judgment and heaviness of God and Justin's journey to discover what he calls the other half of the picture, the light hand and joy of God. We talk about his first memory as a child being the opening of the Opera House in Sydney and about his years working as a taxi driver in Sydney while at uni. Justin also talks about the differences of being a Christian in the USA and about his current ministry at Churchill Anglican, how they go about ministering specifically to the Sydney CBD, demonstrating God's love and grace to the corporate workers and to Sydney's homeless population in unique ways. You can find out more about Justin and about Churchill Anglican online at York Street spelled out Anglican.com. So here's my conversation with Justin Moffat. I was born in Perth. Okay. Um, my parents moved over when I was about three years old. Okay. So I have almost no memory of Perth. Um, in fact, no memory as a child. Uh, went back there a couple of years ago in that sort of nostalgic thing of like, oh, my mum walked a pram around these streets. But really Perth to me is a sort of um, interesting city that I was born in. But that's about all. Right. Yeah, sorry about that. That's okay. <laughs> and you were a twin? Yeah, I'm a twin. Uh, love my brother. Uh, but what's interesting is that we both shared the same womb, both had the same upbringing, both wore the same clothes. We'd often get the same Christmas presents. But uh, as much as I love my dear brother, we are yin and yang. It's quite remarkable. I don't mind if this goes on either. He'll, he'll tell you it's true too. Um you know, chalk and cheese. Uh, you know, if you met us, of course, you'd, we're the same sort of people. Congenial, happy to talk to people, opinionated, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh-huh. But uh, outside of that, so different in so many ways. So I'm the believer in God. He does not believe in God in any way whatsoever. You know, I have this sort of code of ethics. He has another entirely different set of ethics. Um, both have entirely different outlooks on life. We had lunch the other day, and it was like, so wow, we're really that different. Yeah. Um, and then the beautiful thing is we get to ask each other, okay, if we're this different, and that's not going to change anytime soon, mm. how do we move forward? You know, what's the door we walk through mm. so that we love each other as brothers, as twins? Mm. Um, but it is remarkable. I, I don't, I've never read any studies on twins, but I'd, love, I'd be interested in somebody looking into our experience of life and going, how does that happen? Yeah. You know, I asked him the other day, was there ever any point in which you believed in God? And he just said, you know, basically, no, never. Like, really, never. Yeah. And I'm like, here I am, 10 years old, thinking I displease God and I better read my Bible and, you know, what would God think of that? And, and uh, I better tell my friends about God. 
And yet my brother, zero interest, according to him. Yeah. How does that happen? Were you identical twins? No, 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 no. Okay. Fraternal. So we're talking two, uh, <laughs> two eggs, two sperm, which makes us effectively, um, you know, like brothers. Yeah. Fraternal twins are same DNA as an older and younger brother. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be more interesting if we were identical. That would be fascinating if the cells split and we, we came out of it the way we are. <laughs> but that's not what happens. So. Yeah. Yeah, no. And what are your earliest memories of God or of faith? Yeah, so basically I would say that I had the hand of God heavy on me from birth. Mm. I can't say, of course, birth, birth, but I um, I can remember as a, a very young kid, preschool, believing that such and such was about to happen and I didn't want it to happen, you know, whatever, you know, something minor and believing that uh, that the only way forward was for me to actually ask God to do something. Mm-hmm. Really young age. You know, he- and a heavy hand. I'll tell you a bit more about the light hand of God, which I discovered later and that was, um, well, not the lighter, but I'll, I'll talk about that in a moment. But I remember um, seeing my cousin read his Bible and thinking, I should be reading my Bible. Why aren't I reading my Bible? And thinking that God would judge me or be displeased with me for not reading my Bible. Um, you know, I'd go to church and, and uh, if I didn't listen, I'd think I should be listening. You know, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. I've got a 10-year-old son now and even last night he asked me, you know, he said, oh, sometimes when we pray together, Dad, my mind wanders. And I said, yeah, and when your mind wanders, do you somehow sometimes think, you know, that God is not happy with that? And he said, yeah, how did you know? <laughs> I said, I felt it myself, you know. Mm. So I can see the same that I trod on a path, my son is treading on the same path. And when I say the heavy hand, what I mean is I think deep down I was never quite sure whether God was for me I was never um, content. I worried a lot. Very strong sense of of um, the judgment of God. As a kid, you know, mm-hmm. I'd read passages about heaven and hell, and they would they would weigh heavily on me. Um, fascinating that I got to university. I had a couple of like God moments, conversion moments, but I, I can go more into them later if you like. But one moment, I'm at university, I'm sitting at, at the University of Sydney, I'm sitting in the Cars Law Lecture Theatre, I'm at a meeting for what is known as the Sydney University Evangelical Union, which is a mouthful, but it's just a, a, a large Christian group on campus. I'm in first year university. The topic of the talk is, is it arrogant to say you're going to heaven? And I answered, as I walked to the theatre, when I saw the posters, mm-hmm. I answered, well, I suppose it is. Mm-hmm. Because you're saying you're good enough for God, you know? Only good people go to heaven, I thought, so, you know, um, and, and I suppose you're arrogant if you say you're going to heaven because you're saying you're good enough for God. 
And I walked in the room and uh, the speaker got up and, said, and he asked the question, is arrogant say going to heaven? He said, no. So I said, up, you know, I've answered the, raw, the question wrongly in my own mind. And he <laughs> said, not if Jesus Christ did all the work for you to be right with God. If he's done all the work on the cross, mm-hmm. bloodshed, him for me, you know, in the judgment of God, I should have been the one to die, but he died for me. And this is God doing it himself in a Christian worldview. Um, and if he's done all the work, then it's not, it's humbling. Mm. You, know, you know, to be saved by grace is a beautiful idea, but it's in effect saying you couldn't do it yourself. Somebody had to do it for you. And that's delightful news. Mm. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound, you know. But, uh, but it also means I didn't do it. God made me right with him. I didn't reach up to God. He reached down to me. That's what Christmas is about too, by the way. Mm. He turns up. You know, we didn't sort of get ourselves to a state where we were good enough, spiritual enough. We didn't meditate enough. We didn't do all this stuff to f- finally God to enlighten us. He turns up in a stable when we didn't want him, you know. And that's the, that's the Christian message. I, he, he came to me. I didn't come to him. Mm. Millions of people will tell you that that's their story. That's mine too. My first memory, by the way, uh, you know, I'll give you my age. I'll, mm. I was born in 1970, so 45. My first memory is the opening of the Opera House. Wow. 1973. I was three years old and uh, I stood there on the side of the road. I can still remember the Queen driving by <laughs> and uh, the crowds were going nuts. Yeah. You think about that now. I mean, just not a different world that we live in. Yeah. The crowd was going nuts for the Queen. That's one of my earliest memories. Yeah, interesting. Very interesting. About 20 years later, I was driving a taxi. Yes. And uh, driving it, not a passenger, I was the, the taxi driver. Mm. And I was sitting on the corner of Phillips Street and Bridge Street uh, up near uh, the Conservatorium of Music. And the lights were red and I was just sitting there maybe 10 at night. No one else was around. It was a sort of dead night. Uh, there was another car next to me and uh, the lights were red. And uh, they don't go green, right? Two minutes, three minutes, four minutes, five minutes. And that's a long time for to be sitting yeah. at lights going, there must be something wrong with the lights. Yeah. And I look across at the driver next to me saying, do you want to just break the law and drive through it? And uh, eventually the Queen's, this is like 20 years after that first memory. This yeah. is like um, mid-90s. The Queen goes by and stares at me in the eyes. You know, just a lone car, off it goes. There's two cars there. Queen drives by, sort of looks and sort of you know, <laughs> nods effectively. And uh, I look across at the other driver and we both laughed out loud. But I remember thinking at the time, wow, 20 years since the crowds went wild. Now we don't really care that much about monarchy. You know, Australia's mm. just changed a lot, really. And we care, Kate and William coming to town, but that's about celebrity, not about yeah. God, king, and country. It's a very different Australia. Anyway, mm. I'm going off topic. No, that's all right. So you became a taxi driver. How did you get there? So I was at university and uh, I kept working for people always working for the man, you know, coffee shops and I worked at the Intercontinental Hotel in a bar and, you know, you've just got to be there at a certain time and the boss tells you what to do and, and um, you know, I didn't want that really. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to set my own hours and do my own thing and taxi driving is fascinating because it's a bit like um, 
like hiring a car. You don't have a boss. Mm-hmm. You walk in and you say to an owner of a taxi, can I have your taxi for 12 hours? I'll pay you X amount of dollars and everything I earn above that I keep, beside the taxes, of course. So, you know, taxi driver is his own boss. Mm. And I thought that's just like the perfect job to get me through uni. Work when you want to. I'm not recommending any of your listeners become one. It's hard work, I think now, especially, especially with Uber. But back then, you know, I could work on a Friday and Saturday night and really get enough money to, to, to live as a uni student. And while I was at Moore Theological College, Okay. I drove, I drove when I finished my university and when I started my theological education. And it suited me to a T. Starts at three in the afternoon, finished at three in the morning. I'm a night owl, you know? Mm-hmm. I loved that. I loved how you'd, somebody would get in the car and you wouldn't know where they were going, right? It's like, mm. my, I don't know if your listeners know Myers-Briggs personality testing. I'm an extrovert on one hand, and I'm a, uh, what's called a P or perception, which means I love chaos, you know, I like a bit of spontaneity. And so extroversion and spontaneity is, is, uh, is a taxi driver's dream, because you don't know where you're going to go, mm-hmm. what the conversation is going to be like, who you'll next pick up, how big the ride will be. And so I saw lots of fascinating things. You get a real sense of, of, of humanity. And, the, and, and, you know, the old line that if you want to know what a city is like, ask the taxi drivers, mm. you know, um, because taxi drivers have these snippets of conversations and they're not in your own echo chamber. You know, if you're in a, uh, working in a hospital, for example, 90% of your conversations are about health and yeah. around certain people with certain education. And, mm. I mean, you've got the patients, of course. No, you get the patients. I'm not sure. But the thing about a taxi driver is, as long as people are willing to talk to you, you get businessmen coming to the taxi, he pays you and gets out, and then a kid will get in going to their year 12 formal, you know, with mm. their heart pounding and not knowing what's going to happen, and mm. they'll get out of the other end and a, you know, a, a, um, a, a retiree will get in that, you know, has Alzheimer's, you know, and they can't pay you, they can't find the coins, you know, and, and that yeah. person, and prostitute, you know, that person will get out, prostitute will get in. Transvestites, a um, couple of famous people, mm-hmm. um, you know, not outrageously famous, this is Australia after all, <laughs> but. Um, Are there any stories or particular people you met that sort of stand yeah. out? Yeah, I probably my. My most favourite one, most favourite, is that the word? Doesn't matter. Uh, I picked up an 80 year old man in Oxford Street, Bondi Junction. Mm-hmm. And he gets in with his, clearly his wife in the back seat, and a, there was a young woman in the front seat. The young woman was dressed in sort of business clothes, and she says, she turns around and she says to the couple, um, That was a nice interview on 2 Triple M. And I hear this and I think, why is 2 M, which, uh, you know, back then was a radio station of note, <laughs> probably not as much anymore, but um, uh, I remember thinking to myself, why does 2 M, which is a young person's radio station, why are they interviewing an octogenarian? Why are they interviewing an 80-year-old? And uh, the 80-year-old said, in this American accent, he said, yeah, 
wherever I go in life, I meet people who are my friends. It was so cheesy and chintzy. <laughs> and uh, so I turned around to him and I say to him, uh, well, who are you then that I might also be your friend? <laughs> and uh, he told me who he was. And this will appeal to any of your listeners who are over 30. So anybody under 30 might check out for 10 seconds. They might not. <laughs> but he told me his name. His name was Sherwood Schwartz. And you... I don't. I bet you don't know. I, I, don't I guessed do. it. No. <laughs> Sherwood Schwartz wrote, produced, and directed the Brady Bunch. Oh, okay. And Gilligan's Island. Oh, right. Which is so fascinating. So fascinating. Um, you know, these nineteen sixties formula comedies. Yeah. And uh, we had a chat from Bono Junction to uh, Doctor Moff here in the CBD. And uh, he lamented, now, I presume lots of your readers know Brady Bunch. Brady Bunch was a chintzy 60s program where there was a moral at the end. Everyone had to get on, a few little life stories, and that's it. By the time they did the sequels, when I took them in the taxi, they were all innuendo and a um, little bit of smut and, you know, um, sexual references and all that, the, the, the sequel movies of the mm. sitcoms. Yeah. And it was fascinating to talk to this old man about how his show mm. had been hijacked. Oh, okay. So he said, the thing about Brady Bunch and Gilligan's Island were, they were microcosms of life. What do you do when you have people all on the island who are all just a little bit different and they have little clashes here and there? How are they going to get, how, like, like me and my brother, how are they going to, you know, live if they're going to be so different mm. by the time you got to the 90s and 2000s the humor it's not about morals and it's about sort of being cheeky and shocking people it's about shocking not learning another sort of shift uh, which i find interesting anyway he was actually working on the movies <laughs> that's the he was lamenting it and uh, at the end of it he said um Here's my card. I want you to be in my next movie. <laughs> I took his card and made no phone call. Uh, <laughs> I'm not touching that with a barge pole. Fascinating. But it was interesting that my brother, at Christmas, several months later, I told him this story and my brother said to me, you were the taxi driver. I said, what do you mean? He said, I was listening to the, another radio station that afternoon and Sherwood Schwartz, the writer of Brady Bunch, etc., had come onto the television program and, and they asked him what Sydney was like and he said that he just had this conversation with his taxi driver. Oh, wow. And uh, it was on ABC or something. And uh, my brother thought to himself, I wonder if that sounds like Justin, you know, I wonder <laughs> if it's Justin. Because, it you know, there are 5,000 taxi drivers in Sydney and it was. Wow. So it was an interesting little moment. That's cool. So, yeah, little moments like that. I had uh, some um, frightening moments. So I had somebody try to try to 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 come on to me uh in a i would call a an aggressive way and i had to resist him and uh and uh that was that was uh you know i got a sense there of what you know just a little echo of 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 how painful that sort of situation only an echo mm. but it, you you know I insisted he get out of the cab and and I thought uh, you know why do people do that it's just evil really 
um, you know, he made some joke and and uh, walked out. You know, minor incident. Nothing's minor, of course. But uh, yeah, a little mo- few moments like that. Mm. Yeah. One very, 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 very drunk presenter of a current affair. Oh, really? He, uh, I didn't even know him, really. I mean, I, after I took him, I then, if I watched the program, I went, oh, that's that guy. <laughs> he was so drunk right. that I had to sort of leave him. I had to drag him out of the taxi and leave him on his front lawn. Oh, no. And knock on his doorbell to get his wife at five in the morning. He could barely articulate where he lived. And he kept saying, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? <laughs> and I felt so sorry for him, so drunk. Yeah. And yet so desperate for approval or for fame or recognition, you know. Do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? I got a glimpse, of course, by that, not just into his heart, but into the human heart. You know, not that... We all want fame. Some of us would run from that like a, from a, like a million miles. We all want approval. We all want, we don't, we, we don't want to be uh, a nobody. You know, we want to be recognized and loved, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And that was a distortion of it. It was an ugly distortion, quite frankly. But a distortion of what is inside every human heart. So interestingly, I think he's looking for God and he doesn't know it. Mm. He's looking for God and he doesn't know it. Because, and C.S. Lewis is great on this. If any of your listeners right now are sitting in front of a computer, which some of them will be, I presume, Google uh, a weight, the, the Weight of Glory, The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis. It's a sermon he gave in the middle of the Second World War. It's a long sermon, like a really good film. You've got to watch it twice. Right? You've got to read it twice, but at the end of it, The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis, you go, oh, wow, you know, now I understand a whole bunch more. And basically, one of the things he's saying is that every human being wants approval. Uh, um, glory, actually, is what he says. The trouble is we go and find glory in the wrong things. Mm-hmm. I can be famous on television or, you know... Um, this new relationship will give me the significance I need. Mm-hmm. I'm not a nobody, and that's why I need uh, my boss to award me for the things I do that's wrong. Right, sorry, things I do that's right. Let me get that right. Um, and he just says, basically, you get those things from God. Um, and he says in the in the the essay, the trouble with that human beings that we're far too easily pleased (laughs) you know he says God offers us infinite joy infinite recognition infinite love Um, and he says you know we we're like children running after these other things you know through alcohol or relationships sex money power we go looking for these things he says but we're like children playing around in the mud because we simply can't understand what is meant by a holiday at the sea. Mm. You know, we, we go searching for the things that God wants to give us and all these other things. But in the end, of course, it's, 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 it's idol worship and it breaks the hearts of the worshippers, you know. 
God approves of me. That's what counts. God has dealt with my sin. That's what counts. God loves me. That's what counts. God gives me joy, peace, hope, justice, etc. That's 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 where I get it from. From that foundation, I think a person can live a full life. I think outside of that, you're always scrambling to lay the foundation. And how do you build a house and lay the foundation at the same time? How about let's get the foundation right, mm. and then you build the house of life. You live life. Yeah. Is that helpful. I don't know if it is, but. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Yeah. yeah. I think it was Chesterton. Somebody should check me up on this, by the way. A quick Google would help me. And you can <laughs> but um, someone, I think it was Chesterton who said, uh, every person who walks into a brothel is looking for God. That's a shocking statement, isn't it? Mm. It's worth letting it sink in for a second. Every person who walks into a brothel is looking for God. And one answer, the answer is, no, they're not. <laughs> no, they're not. They're looking for cheap whatever, thrills or, you know, unrelational sex or, or et cetera, et cetera. But the other way to look at it is to say they've got a void in their life that they think this will fill, but it never does. Not there, not in more money, not in even a new home. People go from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing hoping that they'll be filled or happier, but they never are. That's, and I, Lewis, well, the Bible makes this point very clear. You know, God is my strength because he's a creator. Mm. You know, that's why the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1 can say, he's in jail, uh, he could be executed for being Christian. People are undermining the gospel in the cities that he preached Christ in. You know, and yet he can still say, I have joy mm. because he's not going looking for it outside of God. Mm. I love that line, um, you know, if, if, if you feel the well, the well out of your life is dry, what do you do? <laughs> and the only answer is dig deeper. <laughs> I don't, by which I don't mean do more hard work. Mm. This was in a book by Yancey called Reaching for the Invisible God. Um, he makes the point that if you believe that the water is there where you are, um, then you dig, you know, you press deeper into God until you find it. Mm-hmm. But if you don't believe it's there, if you don't believe that security and joy and forgiveness, justification comes in God, you're going to try to build a world elsewhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, it just doesn't work. Mm. So I've sort of jumped down a bunch of rabbit holes there that's fine (laughs) so staying on that theme like you've talked about with your own faith growing up feeling a sense of sort of i guess guilt maybe and Mm. burden then to kind of having that moment at uni so can you talk through more of that journey and how you ended up deciding to become a minister yeah okay so firstly that moment was to quote luther like heaven opened for me right by grace alone Mm-hmm. through faith alone not by works and then I became a grace junkie <laughs> I read and loved everything I saw on grace grace of course is to be loved at the bottom um, I find it very strange that the newspapers will say that someone fell from grace mm. and what they what they mean is they were at this lovely point high in society 
Everybody loved them. They were doing great things, contributing to society. Then we all discovered they were a real human being, did something wrong, and they fell from grace. And I think that's just the opposite of the Christian message, which is you can't fall from grace on one level, you're at the bottom already. The Bible does talk about falling from grace, but it doesn't mean it in the way our media means it. Um, it means, um, you know, to actually let go of the grace of God that he loves you, you know. So I just loved grace. And I hadn't decided to become a minister before that moment. You know, part of the heavy hand of God, if God's real, if there's a message to get out there, then I can't do anything but become a minister. So I'm year 11 thinking I should be a minister. Mm. You know, but all, not not laden with guilt, but but there was guilt in the equation for me. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of fascinated by God, but felt his heavy hand. Mm-hmm. So I thought about going to ministry before the time of understanding God's grace came. Mm. But after that, you know, the fuel went into the tank even more. So after that, there was, it was not that I was peddling my faith through all this sort of heavy handedness and guilt. And suddenly there was fuel in my tank, the spirit of God alive, you know, um, not just to, not just to give me a bars or something, but to drive um, a life of, 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 of joy and, and, and wanting people to know about this love of God, you know, not, not out of guilt, but out of joy and passion. Mm. So I went to university, uh, you know, I did an arts degree at university, but I, did, I spent more time with the Christian group. Um, but I passed and uh, did okay. So <laughs> and then right after university, I then spent three years in New York, uh, sorry, New York. I did go to New York, but not then. Three years in Newcastle. Mm-hmm. And uh, I spent that with a, a, a mentor who was so creative, you know, the kite was flying and yet so grounded in scripture that I, so I spent three years with him there. Then I studied at uh, Moore Theological College for three years. Do you want to, is this, mm. there's a timeline sort of here. Then I became a youth minister at Christchurch and I did high school youth ministry in a, a fun, large, um, alive youth ministry and a couple hundred kids, 300 kids or so. And that was terrific. I was there for nine years and then New York came on the scene. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, I'd mar- by then I'd married an American and, uh, and so we, um, we got up and went to New York, lived in Manhattan and then came here. New York gave me the city bug, which is why I accepted this role here in the mm. CBD of Sydney. I'm using a lot of metaphors in this sort of picture language here. Mm. Uh, probably mixing them too much, but you know, it's like, um, well, I used to describe it then. My faith was like, you know, on the table was a bunch of vegetables and I should eat them because it's good for me, <laughs> you see. After that moment of understanding the gospel, you know, which is a moment from God, a moment of the spirit that I then had to press into and understand and unpack and had to do the hard work of theology and reading the Bible and doing it in community. And um, after that, it wasn't like a pile of vegetables on on the table that I was supposed to eat, (laughs) but rather there was a feast, a banquet on the table of the love of God. And I I wanted to ask people to join me at the banquet. Yeah. So um, 
a lot more fun after that. Mm. Yeah, a lot more um, joy and life in it. Great. Yeah, and I, I would say though that uh, 20 years of ministry um, uh, a little bit like marriage, uh, the joy changes shape. Um, <laughs> there's a question in a uh, marriage online, well not online, but a course called Prepare. I don't know if you did it or your, any of your listeners did it before they got married. A bunch of questions that you ask and somebody gets to, uh, to reflect on, on, on your life before you get married. And there's one question there about ex- whether love, your love, whether you expect your love to fade somewhat over time. And uh, a lot of people answer, "No way!" You know, I can't imagine that happening. The course wants you to answer yes that you it will or it might, um, uh, because they and I. It's a bit of a defeatist way of looking at it, really, but. The way I think about it is, uh, no, love changes its shape over time, you know? So you get married and you're young and in love and it's so interesting and everything's new, but you know, when when or if God gives a child a couple, uh, sorry, gives a couple a child, then there's a level of tiredness, et cetera. And then, you know, maybe a child has a difficult teenage years and that puts strain on you, you know, empty nesting. In other words, the love changes shape Mm-hmm. And I think the joy changes shape over a life, a Christian life. Mm. So now, back then, everything was new. Every book of the Bible was new. Oh, wow, Galatians. I hadn't realized, you know, that this group had come in and told them that to be truly right with God, you had to follow these Jewish commands, and Paul was there to free them. It was new for me, you know. Mm-hmm. It was new that that was different from Philippians, where, which is the book of joy, you know, and I read Revelation for the first time, you know, and I never read it before. And this time I read it and this time I understood it. Mm. Whereas now 20 years later, I've read all of those books, you know, five times. What's more, ministry has a lot coming at you all the time. You know, it's like a vice, another metaphor, like a vice. You know, all these pastoral situations that are complex. Um, you know, you want to have simple answers, but you don't have them. You're always trying to put principles in there. So you've always got the joy because you've got Jesus, and Jesus is my joy, so you can never lose your joy. Mm. But um, the feeling of it comes and goes, of course. Mm. Um, and so I think I've had tough times in ministry, you know, like uh, mm. dry times, but God has always got me through it. Mm. Disappointment, you know, all that. Yeah. I think that's great. I think it's a big encouragement to a lot of people to know it doesn't mean your faith's gone if it's not at its most joyful. Or, mm. yeah. No, 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 no. People walking away from Jesus because they don't feel joy for X amount of months or years, mm. uh, it, it's defeatist, you know. Um, I get why. Mm-hmm. I understand why, but there's so many people who can tell you about their journey through a period of dryness or suffering who came through on the other side, more loving, more lovely, more in love with God, more Christ-like, you know, more like God. Um, And the Bible's full of it, Job, Psalms. My favorite verse right now is actually 
uh, well, Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, right, I'm in this tunnel, yet I will fear no evil, which is absolutely crazy, right? It's irrational. I'm in the valley of the shadow of death, right, some major suffering or pain, yet I'll fear no evil, that is irrational. We talk about rational human beings. It's irrational to be in the valley of the shadow of death and not fear any evil, except by optimism. I guess that's the only sheer, plain optimism. (laughs) But that's not the reason that King David says that he fears no evil. He says, I will fear no evil because thou art with me. Yeah, thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Beautiful. Mm. In other words, God with me is the reason I, you know, even though I feel no joy, I knew a man suffering from such depression that he sort of couldn't get out of bed. His kids would say to him, Dad, if you've got enough energy to read your Bible, that'd be great. He didn't even have enough energy to do that. All he did was have enough energy to say, um, you know, God be near me, or just God, sometimes just Jesus. But... uh, that was um, that was good. That was the way. Uh, that's that's there. And what's more, that's the incarnation story as well. God with me. Mm. <laughs> um, Israel saying, um, or those who recognised Christ, God is with us in the valley of the shadow of death, in our exile. Mm-hmm. I think it would be interesting to hear about your experience in the USA and the kind of the cultural differences. Yeah. Over there? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, there's, you know, very few and stacks at the same time. <laughs> mm-hmm. Very few in the sense that we're, you know, same sort of heritage England. Um, you know, same, a lot of freedoms, the same, etc. But so many differences as well. So my wife's American, interestingly. So people look at us and they think there's no cross-cultural gap. Mm. Um, not like if I'd married, you know, an African or something, you know, um, uh, uh, but there are enormous amounts of differences. Um, you know, I think Americans are optimists, whereas Australians sometimes tend towards, you know, pessimism, I think. Um, I mean, there's a whole thesis on why that is the case, if it's true. Um, there's, you know, the whole can-do American thing. Um, I don't know, it's hard to say. I will say this about being Christian, really. I think it's very hard to be Christian in... America. I think it's harder to be Christian in America than in Australia. Really? Yeah, everybody says, why, really? There were more, more Christians there. And like, bingo! Mm-hmm. <laughs> Christianity is forged uh, for whatever reason in the plans and purposes of God in, in, in suffering and in powerlessness. The less power you have, the, somehow the more Christ shines. And there's something about that in the gospel. You know, in the, the early church didn't have any power. There's no moral majority, you know? Uh, they just loved people and preached Christ and got strung up for it, you know. Um, there's no uh, getting into Parliament. I mean, there's a few significant influences there, you know, in the New Testament, but not many. You know, Paul says, 1 Corinthians, not many of you wise, not many of you, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But God chose the foolish things in the world to shame the wise, and yet America's full of incredibly brilliant, talented Christians, but it's full of them. <laughs> in the South, you know, uh, if you don't go, if you, you can't answer the question, where do you go to church? Some people 
will look down on you. I mean, that's got to mess with your head, you know, going to church for some advantage, mm. you know, some commercial advantage. I think it's America's a beautiful. I love it, by the way. My, all my kids are American. They're dual citizens, but I love America. I've been there, you know, 15 or 20 times, worked there. But it's a, it's a difficult sort of place, really, mm. forging faith in a place where... There's a moral majority there. New York, I found a bit easier, actually, quite frankly. New York was more similar to Sydney than, for example, Atlanta, where my wife is from, is to Sydney. Mm. Yeah, I think something like 30% of people go to church in Atlanta. That's crazy. That's wonderful, but huge. Mm -hmm. You know, whereas New York is far more secular. Um, Loved it, by the way. Learned lots. Learned lots. But would have loved to have stayed there. But St. Philip's came on the map <laughs> and you mm. don't say no to a CBD church. You just, you don't do that. Yeah. yeah. So can you tell us a bit about... So I got here and I found out that mm. St. Philip's, which is on the corner of York Street, Jamison and Clarence, coming off the Harbour Bridge or onto the Harbour Bridge, you're highly likely to pass it. Sandstone, Australia's original church. It's the, not the oldest building, plenty of older buildings. Uh, but it's the third building of the first church. Um, they come off the first fleet and, you know, built a church on the hill. They called it Churchill, um, which is the name of the parish uh, that, that I'm the minister of, the, the Anglican parish of Churchill, which is just the whole, basically it's the northern part of the CBD, uh, Circular Quay, Overseas Terminal, Rocks, Millers Point, Barangaroo, and uh, down to Market Street. That's my patch. Um, I found out when I got here that the property of St. Phillips is worth $61 million. Wow. <laughs> $61 million. Of course, we could never sell it. No one would ever buy it. Wouldn't be allowed to sell it. All that. Wouldn't want to sell it, you know. So you, I'm, it, it's a joke when I say, <laughs> why don't we sell it and give the money to the poor or to Christian mission? $61 million is a lot of money. Yeah. Right? And that, that question, that was just a thought experiment. As I say, we'd never do it, but I don't want anybody, your listeners to hear this and think <laughs> we were planning on it. Not at all, but it's a great thought experiment. Mm. Why not sell it and give it to the poor? Have we got a reason for being here? Why has God got us here in this time and place? And that was the question that really drove me for a number of years. Mm. So we wanted to preach Christ, teach the Bible, um, call people to faith and repentance and a deeper life in Him, in Christ. Uh, but we wanted to do it in the city. That, you know, we had a context. So as, as uh, some of your listeners might know, Dr. Timothy Keller talks about a theological vision, which is a statement of um, a vision of, of, of uh, it's rooted in the doctrines of, the, of, of, of evangelical Christianity. Bible is the word of God. Christ died for sins. Substitutionary atonement. Resurrection. Bodily resurrection. Um, come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Etc. 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 But you need to faithfully articulate that for your time. Mm. And in the spot that God has given you. So what does it look like in the CBD of Sydney? In secular Sydney? And so uh, we realize that the gospel changes everything. So we do a whole lot of stuff that we think um, want to be the kind of church that, that, that reflects being in the CBD, which means we want to do more work with workers, 250,000 of them, I think, or something like that, pouring into the CBD every day. 
We do work, quite a lot of work with the homeless. So we do a city care lunch six times a year and then the bar, a barber and breakfast the Tuesday after that. So it's, it's a lot of love, a lot of care, a lot of conversation. You know, we give them a meal. But, you know, people talk about soup kitchens and I sort of, you know, reach for my gun. I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm sure soup kitchens are great. I've never seen one. But soup kitchens have this tendency to say, um, hey, we're here to feed people. No, 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 no. We give them a steak, a real thick, juicy steak, you know, that's medium rare. And we give them salads that, you know, make your mouth water and desserts are fantastic. Why? Because God's grace is lavish. Yeah. So why shouldn't the food be lavish? That's great. Right? And, uh, but they don't stay. They, 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 most of them have got the food and they're done within half an hour, but they stay for three hours. Why? Because of the gospel. Right? Mm. Not that every conversation is about the gospel, although lots are, right? Because a lot of the homeless now and those who are rough sleepers and marginalized, they're beginning to trust us. They ask us to pray first for them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we, um, we're doing that. Um, you know, we, we want to en- um, encourage creativity rather than dampen it. Um, yeah, plenty of stuff like that. So all good fun. So St. Philip's grew solidly and uh, then, then uh, in dialogue with the then rector or senior minister of the Garrison Church, which is up from the Argyle Cup, from the rocks, and uh, we sort of hatched a plan to, to, for me to become the minister of both churches so that one ministry team could tend to both churches and see, see them both sing for the glory of Christ in the city. So that's only been a year old and we're working on it. You know, it takes time, but we're working on it. Great. To finish off, would you like to tell us just in short what your core beliefs and your worldview yeah right (laughs) again another verse um um isaiah uh, chapter 11 together with habakkuk chapter 2 for the time will come when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of god in the same way that the waters cover the sea in other words completely now that's a vision, right? <laughs> and that's a that's God's vision. Well, I mean, there's a number of ways to articulate God's vision, uh, but that will be one way, right? The earth filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea, which I guess is Apostle Paul when he says, um, "Christ, Jesus Christ, will fill everything in every way." You know, um, so that's what I want. <laughs> uh, but how does that happen? And it happens because I think individuals encounter God through the gospel primarily and only in the quickening power of God's spirit uh, their chains fall off <laughs> um, of, of sin um, and uh, the judgment of God and they, they're, they're free doesn't mean there are problems this side of the return of Christ but that's the idea and here's the big thing for me I want to live in that space between grace and truth grace you know is a uh, the hand of God below me, upholding me. You know, you have me held in your right hand, underneath me, loving me, forgiving me, gracious towards me, a sinner, right? But I also want the hand of God above me, <laughs> um, which is that I know that he'll judge me. You know, he judges the secret th- thoughts of all. Um, uh, he's a God not to be trifled with. Don't mess with God, right? Yeah, don't mess with God. But that 
inkling I had as a child wasn't entirely wrong, was it? It just wasn't complete. People are flipping about God. I wasn't when I was a 10-year-old. I just needed the other half. We need grace and truth. And we need to live in that space between both. And the great thing of all, of course, is the Apostle John says, we have seen his glory. You know, the word became flesh. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son from the Father. And what is he full of? Grace and truth. Amen. <laughs> Sparrows and Wildflowers is brought to you by Victory One Media and hosted by Rachel Simpson with artwork by Nicola Gibb.